We're glad you're at Grace this morning. Thanks for being here. Uh, whether you're here or in Paulding, we're, we're glad that we've come together uh, to look at God's Word. And i got to tell you, uh, the Bible is different than any other religious book in the world in that it reveals the flaws of its heroes. I mean, in the Bible, it, it doesn't pull any punches. It basically, the Bible tells us that people are a mess. We're a mess. We have issues. And, and the whole, really, theme of Scripture is that while we were at our very worst, God loves us his very best, and he comes to offer to transform our lives. And we're going to see that we'll continue to see that as we continue in our series in Judges. We're now in Judges chapter 10 as we work our way through the book and uh, invite you to turn there. Uh, it's the seventh book in the Old Testament. If you get into a bunch of first and second stuff, you've gone a little too far, back it up. And uh, if you're using one of the hardback Bibles uh, from the back of our chair rack, it's page 257. And so the whole theme of Judges is really, it's a dark world, a broken people, and a faithful God. And we'll see that continue in our story today. We're actually going to learn something that's very applicable for this weekend for us. And that is, first of all, that when, whether an individual heart or a nation, when we rebel against God, it always brings disaster. But when we truly repent, God will always deliver. And then we'll also learn how sometimes we allow our culture to define our understanding of God and we'll always suffer consequences for that. You ready to dive in, Judges? All right, let's go. We're ready. Okay, Judges chapter 10. And again, we're going to start in verse 6. Rebellion against God always brings disaster. And we're familiar with the pattern going on in Israel of disobedience, disaster, repentance, deliverance. So here we go in verse 6. Judges 10, verse 6. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Aram and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the sons of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. What's different here than all the other times previous to this chapter 10 in the book of Judges is they many times turn to another god. Jeremy's going to get my TV rolling here, I bet. Uh, many times they turn to a different god. But here, the author's letting us know that they're turning to all the other gods. I mean, all around them, all the false gods, they're, they're doing it all. They're, they're, they're focusing on every other god but God. And so we see that they've slid even further away from God, and God, of course, what happens every time with individual or country, it just brings disaster. And so here we see this time again in Israel's history where they're bringing disaster on themselves by rebelling further and further against God. And same way with any nation, and same way with our nation. 
How many of you noticed the, the court ruling this week? You know, these are moral issues. And uh, as, as that fell out, we just need to remember that the further our country drifts from God's truth, the, it's not going to be good for us. It will bring disaster. The further we go, more disaster will come. So we had a 5-4 ruling of our Supreme Court, a narrow victory, 5-4. to four. And, and there's a lot of people, you know, joy, celebrating that, and there's some people upset with that. People are upset because it seemed to have short-circuited our legislative process where we elect legislatures who make laws, and then those laws then become the law of the land. Where in this circumstance, the majority, five justices, found within our Constitution, I believe actually the 14th Amendment, which have no, has nothing to do with marriage, nothing to do with sexuality, has everything to do with race, actually. They find in the 14th Amendment a, a right to same-sex marriage. So people are upset about that. But the point is, hey, what we're saying... And then when... when Sometimes we voice our displeasure. There's a lot of kickback from our culture, right? Because people will say, well, you say you love people. How can you love people and, and not want them to have their rights? But we're saying, what we're saying is we love all people. We want the best for all people. And what's best is right. But the thing that, that we don't expect other people to understand, but Christians should understand is, we don't make the call on what's right. God makes the call on what's right. So he said what's right and wrong. That's his standard. And we're, we just know the further we drift from that, it won't be good for us. It won't be good for any community within our country. And so that's obviously how we see it. But we should understand people who don't follow God don't see it that way. We love them anyway. But we still believe that marriage, most believers would say marriage should be defined the way God defines marriage, one, one man, one woman, ideally for a lifetime. So we've got all this going on, and uh, even chief uh, justice, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, Justice Roberts said, the majority's decision is an act of will, not a legal judgment. What, what he's saying there is, there's no right to same-sex marriage in the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. And there isn't. But they have reinterpreted it to mean that. That's not anybody's intent. That's not when they were thinking when they passed the 14th Amendment. But that's kind of what we do. Which, which reminds us that if that's an issue for you, then it's important to elect presidents who nominate justices who interpret the Constitution in the way it was originally written rather than what they can squeeze into it. Does that make sense? So obviously there's some disagreement on that in our culture. We understand that. And, and from our point of view, it's not the first time the Supreme Court has made a bad ruling. In 1857, the Dred Scott ruling said that African Americans could not become citizens of the United States after they had already been citizens. And... And also said that the country had no right or way to, to, not, to keep slavery from being an issue in our country. They couldn't, the, that the government could not limit slavery. Well, that was a wrong ruling. 
Roe v. Wade, we would say, was a wrong ruling that happened in, in the 70s, and as a result, 55 million babies have been aborted. We say, well, that's just morally not right. Not because that's our preference, because that's what we say God, that's what God's saying. That's what his, his word says that that's wrong. That's kind of, that's where we're coming from, so we understand that that's an issue. And uh, the point is simply this, who gets to say? Who gets to say? Is it five Supreme Court justices? Is it a president? Is it the majority, the minority? It's, it's always been the majority of Americans defended traditional marriage, maybe up until this weekend. But who gets to say? And we're saying, well, actually, if it's a moral issue, God gets to say. That's the difference. So, but here's the deal. No matter when you're living or what country you're in or what's the state of your heart, rebellion eventually brings disaster. But true repentance will always bring deliverance. True repentance to God will always bring deliverance. And that's exactly what happened in Judges chapter 10. Israel turns to God. Now, and Israel, it, it's way out there. I mean, they're serving all the other gods in the pagan cultures around them. But they turn to God because disasters come upon their land. And they're saying, God, help us. And it's kind of interesting because at the beginning, God says no. It, it, we'll see how that's worded. Look at verse 14. God says to them when they're crying out for help, he says, go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. And the sons of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. And now we kind of see their regret turning into true repentance. At first, hey, they're just sorry because of their circumstances. Now we see more true repentance coming through. They say, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods. And here's how we know it's true repentance because of this change in their life. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. True repentance, not regret, not worldly regret. We talked about that a little last week. True repentance always brings deliverance, and that's what happens. Now, here, here's how it plays out for Israel. They've been impressed, oppressed by some people called the Ammonites who have been kind of running roughshod through their land. We've seen the same thing before. And, uh, and then they, they cry out to God. At first, God says, Hey, cry out to the other gods you've been serving. And, and then they truly repent. They put the other gods away and God decides to deliver them. So now they know that Israel is set up for battle against the Ammonites, but they realize they lack leadership. And, and they're looking for somebody who could be their general. And they realize that maybe the most valiant warrior they know about is a man called Jephthah. Jephthah, though, was the son of a prostitute. And he was actually driven out of his hometown by his brothers of his father's mother. And, you know, so they drove him out and he sort of, he became an outcast. And he lived on the fringe of society. And because of that, uh, he was there. Some other men, kind of maybe in same circumstances, gathered about him. And they sort of lived by the sword. And so everybody recognized that Jephthah, he could handle himself in a fight. 
And so now they're getting ready to go against the sons of Ammon and they decide, we need Jephthah. So the elders of Gilead, they, they send a delegation and they go ask Jephthah and then he says, what? You want me to come and help you? Do you remember you have driven me from my home? I'm an outcast. Why would you ask me this? And basically says, I'm not really interested. And then the elders of Gilead, they up the ante and they say, look, if you lead us to victory, you will become the head. You'll be like a little king over us. You'll be a tribal chieftain. We will put you as a judge over us. And so Jephthah, he says, okay. And he, he takes on, he decides to take the leadership. Well, the first thing he does, and it's probably a pretty smart move, is he sends a delegation to the sons of Ammon and he says, what's up? We're about to go to war. What's your beef? And then they say, well, we're, we're warring against you and we have for the last 18 years because we're, we have an issue with the land from 300 years ago dating back to the conquest when Joshua came into Canaan. And so they throw that out. They're kind of appealing to history. And then Jephthah answers them a very wise answer. He actually corrects their history and a little bit their theology in a way. He corrects their history says, no, that's not the way it happened. And then he recounts how it was after Israel left Egypt, left the bondage of slavery, and, and then spent four, they received the law of God, spent 40 years wandering because they didn't obey God at the very beginning. And after that 40 years, they went to go into the land again, and they came against some other people. The first people, again, they're on the, the east side coming up from the south of Canaan, on the east side of the Dead Sea, and they encounter the Edomites and the Moabites. And these two kingdoms, they ask permission. Can we cross your land to go into Canaan? And these two kings said, no. And so Israel went further north. They kind of bounced them north. And then they came to the land that's in question in our text today. But it wasn't the Ammonites that were there. It was the Amorites that were there. And they asked the Amorites, can we cross through your land to go to Canaan? And the king of uh, the Amorites says, no. His name was King Sion. He says, no, you can't pass. And then he attacks Israel like the other kings didn't. And then God gives Israel the victory, and then Israel takes over the land of the Amorites. Jephthah's telling the Ammonites this, the Amorites and the Ammonites, two different people. So he's telling the king of the Ammonites, look, you never had this land. We took this land from the Amorites after we fought a defensive battle, after we had asked them if we could cross their land. So what's your beef? Why now, after 300 years, are you making an issue? It's kind of the same thing we see all over the world today. Israel still has land claims against them, right? That's still the unrest in the Middle East. We have the same thing in America, right? Where people are saying, hey, we, you know, this land should belong to somebody else or the, the Native Americans and all that. But here's the deal. Every land that anybody lives in was taken at some point in the past by conquest, right? 500 years ago, here in Seneca and Sandusky County, who, who controlled this land? A coalition of Indian tribes. Where'd they get it from? By beating another Indian tribe. 
who had the land because they drove out another Indian tribe. And on and on it went. It's always been that way. So I don't know where you, you know, it's kind of tough to unravel all that. The point is, any place anybody's living at any time today, the people living there, somebody got that by conquest from somebody else. That's everywhere in the world. So land disputes are always going to happen. So Jephthah sends all that. He, he tells him, hey, your history's a little messed up. This land never belonged to you, never belonged to the Ammonites. It used to belong to the Amorites, and, but they don't really listen to that. And then he does something else. He gives them another argument based on their own flawed theology. He said, so we won this land from the Amorites because our God, the God of Israel, allowed us to win. He goes, you would have done the same thing if you had warred against the Amorites. And the God of the Ammonites, who was Chemish, allowed you to win. You would think that that gave you title to the land too. So he's kind of appealing to their flawed theology that if their false God would allow them to win, then they would have considered that they had rights to the land. But he does all this, and basically the people of Ammon, they don't want to hear it. So they ignore what he says, and then the battle is on. It's the great thing about judges. You have all these battles, and so here are two armies. They're getting ready to square off, and then, like sometimes happens in judges, there's another story. It's the story within the story. And this story within the story sort of dominates, and it becomes bigger than the story of the battle itself. And here's what happens. The story within the story is all about how even God's people can allow culture to define their understanding of God. Basically, God's people at any time, one of the dangers is that we can allow our culture to pollute our understanding of God. That's exactly what happened to Jephthah. Jephthah is in this pagan culture all around him, and he allows that culture to influence the way he understands God, and it's, it's like a nightmare. And, uh, and here's what happens. Look at verse, chapter 11, verse 30. Jephthah makes this foolish and wrong vow to God. After God had already told him he was going to deliver Israel through him. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, "If this is right before the battle, if you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So you have this tragic vow. Here's Jephthah. He's been selected by God. God's already told him he's going to win this battle. He's going to deliver Israel. And then on the eve of the battle, the story within the story is Jephthah makes this foolish, tragic vow to God. He says, God, if you'll really deliver me, here's what I'm going to give you. It's kind of like a bribe. He says, when I come home from victory, the first person out of my house to greet me I'm going to offer up in a burnt sacrifice. This is terrible. We know this is the pagan culture influencing Jephthah because Jephthah already knows he has access to the Bible, at least the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And in the Torah, it says that 
Human sacrifice is detestable to God. Don't do this. Don't do this like all the pagan gods do. But Jephthah makes this vow anyway. Even though God says, that's not who I am, don't do that, that's wrong, he makes the vow. Why? Because he's influenced by culture. He allowed culture to shape his understanding of God. No doubt about it, the culture around Jephthah desynthesized him to God's morality. And he gets it all confused. He gets confused and he gets it all backwards. And he thinks he has to bribe God off for victory. Messes him up. And, and I think the same thing happens today. We as believers, we can have faith in God. And Jephthah was a man of faith. But we can allow our culture to adversely affect our understanding of God. We can allow our culture to kind of pollute our understanding of who God is and his character, what God is like. That's what happened to Jephthah. Not only that, Jephthah, as he's interacting here, he's not only infected by pagan morality, he's also kind of infected by pagan theology, which is a works righteousness. A theology that says... Hey, I've got to buy off God. In order to get God's favor, I have to give God something that's very costly to me. And so that's what he does. Like the pagans would say, okay, God, to their false God, okay, to their false God, they'd say, just to let you know how seriously I'm about following you, I will offer up my child as a burnt offering to you. That, that's what pagan societies did all around him and God's saying in the law do not do that and he does it and, and it's a mistake because of the cultural influence around him Jephthah was thinking that he could manipulate God by by doing this this vow but tragically God had already told Jephthah I'm gonna I'm gonna deliver Israel through you and he's already told him don't do human sacrifice. I think there's a, a lesson here for us. We, you and me, as followers of Christ, we allow culture to affect our understanding of God. We just don't, we don't know how much, probably more than we think, our culture, not the Bible, our culture affects our understanding of God. I, I'll give an example. Our culture is okay with a God of love, but our culture totally rejects a God of of righteousness and holiness. But the true God, the God of the Bible, is both. But our culture only wants half of God, the loving, accepting, paternal grandfather who no matter what we do, pats us on the head and says, we're a good boy, we're a good girl. They don't want the holy, righteous God who tells them what's right and wrong and what they ought to do. People don't want limits. And because of that, they also 
are inclined in our culture to sort of, it's not terrible yet, but sort of persecute people who do preach or talk about or share about a God of justice, righteousness, and holiness. You just got to know that's going on. And I think a lot of that thinking kind of creeps in to us. Now, notice, God is not only love, God is also holy. It actually comes up in this story right after verse 6 where we started, where it was talking about Israel's falling all these other gods. Verse 7 says this, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. You see, we don't like, because of our culture, we don't like to think about a God of justice who burns in anger against sin. It's interesting because some cultures in our world today do like to think about a God like that. And they struggle more with thinking about a God who's loving. The point is, our culture can affect the way we see God, and it shouldn't. God is God. He's revealed himself in his word. And here's the deal. Here's the problem with that. When we allow culture to pollute our understanding of God, it's because we ignore the Bible. We're not holding the Bible up as preeminent on teaching us about God. And when we do that, when we ignore biblical truth, there are three consequences that happens. When we ignore biblical truth, we suffer three consequences. God's people suffers three consequences. When we as faith people, as God followers, ignore God's truth, here's what happens. Number one, we're more affected by culture than we are by the Bible. We're more affected by culture than we think. It probably do us all good to think about that. Jephthah, in the Old Testament... He ignored what God said about human sacrifice. He ignored that God said that human life was sacred. And he makes this vow. Why? Based on culture. Makes us wonder. Makes me wonder. What spiritual blind spots do I have as a result of the culture we're living in? I think we all need to think about that. What, and maybe we don't even know, what spiritual blind spots do I have because I'm a part of this culture? To me, that's, that's what's so valuable about visiting other cultures and believers in other cultures around the world because they can see that in us better than we can because they don't have the same blind spots that we do. We need to keep following God. Not our culture. Second consequence. When we ignore God's truth, we struggle to believe in a God of grace. We struggle to believe in a God of grace. Even the people who believe, you know, who emphasize God's love, they're actually struggling to believe in a God of grace because they're not believing that that God's love for them is in spite of their wrong and their sin. Here's what happened in Jephthah's life in verse 34. Here's what it says. So battle's over. God's delivered the Ammonites into Jephthah's hand. That's the big story, but we're more focused on the story within the story. What's going to happen about this vow Jephthah made? 
when Jephthah came to his house, battle's over, at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. And now she was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. And when he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low, and you're among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. It's a... No telling what he was thinking. He offers God a human sacrifice. I don't know what he was expecting. But when he came in victory to his home, he said, The first thing out of my house's door, the first thing out of my door, I will give up to God in a burnt offering. And it's his daughter. And I don't know what he is thinking. I don't know it was wrong either way. I don't know if he is thinking maybe a servant would come out first or you know somebody else that's attached to the family. But this is his only child walks out the door and so he's he's heartsick he's he's bummed he can't believe that this is happening and and he's just it, it's a tragedy it's a wreck but the crazy thing is he keeps the vow why i mean he could have said I mean, especially when it was his daughter, he could have rethought the whole thing and came to the realization, oh yeah, God doesn't want a human sacrifice. I was wrong. I repent. Do to me whatever you want. I'm sorry. He doesn't do that. He goes ahead with this sacrifice. He gives his daughter, you know, a couple of months to mourn. She asks for that. But he goes forth with this sacrifice. Why? Because he doesn't really trust in God's grace. Because of his culture, he really didn't trust God that God would forgive him and let him go if he didn't keep this vow. He decides to keep the vow because he's afraid if he doesn't, God's going to squash him like a bug, which might be better than offering up his daughter, by the way. He's trapped in his own mistrust of God. The same thing happens today. We are trapped in our own, when we, when we allow culture to influence us, we struggle to really believe in the grace of God that the Bible teaches us about. If we ignore his word and culture starts dominating, that's what happens. And we see that it plays out in our lives through anxiety and worry, through habitual sin. What's happening there are those are instances where we know God's telling us to do something else, but we keep doing what we know God says is wrong because we really don't trust that God has our best interests at heart. We keep thinking, well, I know, God, you want me to do this, but really I think this is best for me. And our culture influences us to think that way. This is good. This is what I need. This is what will fulfill me. And God's saying, no, it's this. And we keep saying, no. For most people, yeah, but for me, it's this. And we mess it up. Second consequence. How about the third? We forget 
that God can use even bad events to serve his purposes. When we allow culture uh, to mess us up, it's because we ignore God's truth. And when we do that, it brings consequences. We're more affected by our culture than the Bible. We struggle to really believe and trust in God's grace. And then thirdly, we forget that God is sovereign, that he can use any circumstance to bring about his purposes. And we should take solace in that. If you're bummed about this this last week, know this. God is not surprised by the Supreme Court ruling. God knew they would rule that before the foundation of the world. God knows everything. There's nothing that we can do as people that will thwart God's purposes ultimately. God is still on the throne. God is still in control. And when you think about it this way, it makes a judgment like that kind of interesting. Because you're like, okay, this is a step away from God. That's always bad. But God has a plan. And God's going to work anyway. And it's interesting. For me, I'm always thinking, this is going to be interesting as we do this thing away from God. It's interesting to see how God will work through this to bring about his purposes. Because he always will. Because he's God, he can do that. Think about it. Marriage, the definition of marriage in the eyes of the public now, that may change. What marriage is, that's not just one man or one woman. It, it can be same sex. And, of course, in the future, then it's like, well, if, if it's just because two people love each other, well, what if three people love each other? Or eight people love each other? Or 27 people love each other? Or what if a, a parent and a grown child love each other? You know, we don't allow them to get married either. We've changed the definition of marriage in our secular culture. But for us as believers, it's nothing's changed, right? We still believe in marriage as the way God instituted it. That hasn't changed. Our mission as believers has not changed. Our beliefs have not changed. Do we, we got this right? Even here at Grace and every church, this ruling puts every religious institution in jeopardy. Because why? Well, because at Grace Community Church, we don't do same-sex marriages. And we will not be doing same-sex marriages. <laughs> because God gets to decide. And if there are legal battles for that, then we will go into legal battle. We will do whatever it takes to follow God because we don't get to decide this stuff. God does. He says what's right and what's wrong. That does not change. And our commitment to follow God 
And his word has not changed. And we need to remember. Just for the record, I got no applause first service, so I'm just, I'm just saying, okay? We as God's people, it's more important than ever that we be salt and light to our culture. We shouldn't expect our culture to understand all this. If they're not following God, of course they don't get this. We are called to impact our culture, to win them one heart at a time, to show them God's love for them and God's telling us all through right and wrong, through his laws, through his righteousness, what's best for all of us as individuals and as a culture, a society, a country together. We stand on God's unchanging, perfect word. Let's pray. God, we thank you. God, that you have given us a compass. Lord, that you've given us instruction, that you've told us what's right or wrong. So it's not us figuring that out, because if we were, we would mess it up. Even we as believers would mess it up. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for loving us. And God, help us to love every community, every person, and be determined to share your love with everyone. So that, that there will be more voices, more hearts, following you, praising you, and understanding your truth. God, thank you. We thank you for our country, even when we get off track. We still have religious freedom. God, and someday we may have to fight for that again. But God, we just want to serve you. God, help us to be committed to your word in Christ's name. Amen.